Welcome to Climate History, the podcast that explores what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown University. And I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown. Before we get started with this month's episode, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for sticking with us during this difficult year. We appreciate your support of climate history, and we look forward to bringing you more episodes next year. This month, we spoke with Vicky Arroyo, Executive Director of the Georgetown Climate Center and Professor from Practice at Georgetown Law. She is Special Advisor to the President of Georgetown and a member of the Faculty Steering Committee of the Georgetown Environment Initiatives. She teaches environmental law and works at the intersection of climate and energy policy with a focus on both mitigation and adaptation. Before coming to Georgetown, she spent over 10 years working at the Pew Center on global climate change. Professor Arroyo, thank you so much for for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing, uh, where you're from, and when you realized that climate change would be the issue you wanted to address in your professional life? Sure. Uh, So I'm from New Orleans. And of course, Louisiana has a lot of pollution from power plants, chemical plants, uh, petroleum. And so I really became interested in environmental causes from a very young age. Mostly, I think, honestly, water pollution because of the Mississippi River being a dumping ground for so many of those plants that were upriver of New Orleans. And Um, asking my folks to take me to public meetings even before I could drive on that and writing about EPA, which launched 50 years this week and had a birthday Um, and studied science and ecology in school and and policy at the Kennedy School before working on reducing emissions from those large facilities, uh, air toxics and conventional pollution in EPA, in Washington, D.C., and in my home state of Louisiana. And actually, it was when I was working in Louisiana that I became aware of climate change, which, of course, we weren't seeing the impacts of yet, but just, you know, the analysis that was showing what might happen in the future. I was uh, representing then-Governor Buddy Romer on a National Governors Association task force in the late 80s and around 1990, and a report actually came out by the states on a bipartisan basis, talking about the need to act at the state and federal level on climate change, even back then, which might surprise folks. Um, And having worked on conventional pollution in those places um, and gone back to law school and worked at a firm for a while, I wanted to shift and work on climate change exclusively um, as I really understood the significance of the threat. And so I joined the Pew Center on Climate Change in 1998 and worked for them for 10 years before coming over to Georgetown and um, launching the Climate Center uh, 12 years ago. So speaking of the Climate Center, um, I think I actually met you at the center my very first day, or the second day, I guess, that I was here for for interviews at, at Georgetown. Left a big positive impression on me. I remember. I remember. Your, your reputation preceded you, though. We were so excited to have you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I vividly remember that day, um, how excited I was. I went out to the air and space after that, actually, and looked at all the spaceships, which was uh, extra Very cool. cool. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but anyway, maybe you could talk about um, what it was like to establish our center and which obstacles maybe you confronted and how you surmounted them. Sure. So for some time, even when I was working more in federal policy at the Pew Center on Global Climate Change, we were hearing from state leaders, you know, people like Gina McCarthy, who of course went on to lead EPA, Lisa Jackson, also a former state leader in New Jersey, also a New Orleans native, by the way, who went on to lead uh, EPA, and Mary Nichols, of course now rumored to maybe be the next EPA administrator, um, who's been so great at CARB for many years. And the states had really been wanting for some time a center in Washington, D.C. to support them, to inform what was happening in Washington with the lessons of the states that have been leaders on this topic for some time and to serve as a resource to the states. And so when I actually interviewed to come over to Georgetown from the Pew Center, it was with state leaders like them. It was with people in governor's offices at the Hall of States where we have an office um, on a bipartisan basis, folks in Schwarzenegger's office and Christine Bergoire's office from Washington State, as well as of course, Georgetown faculty and deans. And I think that was really important because it got buy-in from the states that we serve in the center and, you know, and me, frankly, um, as the first leader and also um, internal support from Georgetown. And uh, since then, you know, I think part of the challenge has been finding a way to run a policy shop within an academic organization that's been around for centuries. And so, um, you know, I think it's been really a great opportunity to be able to demonstrate the multiple benefits of doing that in terms of faculty engagement, certainly student engagement, and even alumni engagement. But it really did take some time to carve out that niche in an academic institution that really wasn't used to these kind of policy shops or more nimble, you know, think tank, do tank operations. Um, so, you know, that, that's that been a little bit of a challenge. Uh, it's gotten better, I would say, over the years, in part because there are more of us now. I think people really understand the value proposition of having centers and institutes at academic institutions that work on cutting-edge issues and give students and faculty the opportunities to engage in events and reports and things like that. So now that you've carved out that niche a little more, what work does the center do today? And can you tell us about some of its accomplishments? Sure. So from the very beginning, when we launched, we said that we wanted to work on both mitigating climate change and adaptation to climate change. Um, and that was a little different because I think a lot of NGOs and a lot of other think tanks and to the extent there were academic groups working on this, you know, we're focused on mitigation and that's certainly important and we've done quite a bit of that. Uh, but I also felt like it was very important, especially being somebody from Louisiana who was seeing, you know, climate change impacts affecting my family already and knowing what we were gonna face in the future, um, really wanted to put adaptation on equal footing from the very beginning. Um, and so on mitigation, we've been spending a lot of time recently in our work facilitating the Transportation and Climate Initiative, which includes several states and Washington, D.C. on the East Coast from the Mid-Atlantic up through New England. And we are the facilitators. We also do policy and legal analysis from around that. We've convened public dialogues and processes and take comments through a portal. Even in this COVID era, we've had workshops online with hundreds of people. Um, so that's been a really going enterprise for many, many years. Uh, 
together, the Transportation and Climate Initiative states have done a lot of great work to support moving to electrification of vehicles, to invest in complete streets and things that make biking and walking safer and transit more available to people, supporting the use of real-time information for transit users, things like that. And in recent years, the states with our assistance have been focused on launching the first regional cap and invest program on a bipartisan basis for states in this sector. The transportation sector has been the hardest nut to crack and it's actually the most polluting sector in this region and now nationally. So it would be a huge accomplishment if we can get this done this year. The scale of the opportunity is much larger than even the regional greenhouse gas initiative, which caps emissions from the power sector in the region. And the dollars that we would see from a program like this would be greater than what has been used, for example, in the VW settlement money, which has allowed these states to invest in things like electric vehicle charging infrastructure and incentives. Um, so that's one area of work that keeps a lot of us busy. We also, in the last administration, worked closely with folks in the Obama administration on development of the Clean Power Plan, facilitating dialogues around tables at Georgetown after President Obama made his climate speech at Georgetown University, really launching the um, Climate Action Plan and really helping to shape that. And then, of course, more recently in this Trump era, helping the states to you know, create a record, if you will, on the rollbacks and comment on those and try to you know, keep moving forward on policy. Um, and that includes having states undertake policies of their own and to join things like the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. So we've supported states like Virginia and Pennsylvania joining that um, initiative that reduces emissions from the power sector. And on adaptation, we have the most comprehensive clearinghouse on adaptation and adaptation clearinghouse that people can look at for free. Uh, we facilitate a lot of place-based work on equitable adaptation, including a lot of work here in the district, um, some of which has been recognized with awards by the Metropolitan Area of Council of Governments for work um, on Ward 7 with community members on flooding risks. And more recently, we've been working with the district and residents on urban heat, especially in this COVID era, where this summer it was difficult for people to take advantage of some of the usual amenities like splash parks and cooling centers because of COVID. So that's just some of the examples of what we do. Um, and, you know, another area that I would just point to is um, just the fact that because we're at an academic institution, we've been able to really benefit from, but also hopefully help uh, the students and recent graduates. Um, some of whom come on as our staff or as fellows. And so I think of it as capacity building for the next generation who work on climate change. And we take them and senior state officials, including governors uh, and others to the climate negotiations and other meetings to uphold the uh, importance of subnational leadership in those venues. So, um, so those are some of the things that we do. Yeah, I want to dive into a whole bunch of that stuff. Um, but first, uh, you mentioned uh, that, that the transportation sector was the hardest nut to crack. And I wonder if you could just explain to our listeners why it's well, such a hard nut to crack. Yeah, I think it's a few things. I mean, on the one hand, we already have seen various ways that we have shifted from, for example, coal to renewables, in part because of state policies that promote clean energy and federal tax incentives and things like that. So our grid has gotten cleaner, which is great. 
Um, that hasn't happened so much in transportation. It took a very long time for uh, the federal government to attack the um, vehicle standards and to really um, improve the fuel economy standards and then to add a greenhouse gas component to that in the last administration. And so, you know, the transportation sector has been lagging in that respect. And then it's also more complicated because it's not just about one stationary source of pollution or one category of stationary sources like power plants. It's, it's really all of us, you know, it's the vehicles that we choose to drive, where we live and land use policies that might affect that, our availability of safe and affordable and accessible transit or bike paths, you know, um, even sidewalks, you know, things like that. So it really is a lot of different layers um, that really impact the carbon emissions from the sector. And all of those can't necessarily be moved by any one level of government acting alone. So even though the federal government can do a lot in terms of vehicle standards, and certainly the last administration was doing that, um, the states have authority for transportation planning, the locals have authority for land use. So it really does require a lot of different layers of state level actors, um, federal, state, local working together. And also, you know, the public having an appetite for vehicles that are more efficient and ideally, you know, really moving towards zero carbon emissions like electric vehicles, like the Bolt that I drive now, which I'm very happy with. So we have seen some progress, I think, um, over the last four years, even here in the United States in, in terms of limiting emissions, which I'm not sure if I expected when uh, Trump became president. But um, those of you, including yourself, of course, uh, Professor Royal, who work at the state level, probably might have anticipated that. Um, can you give us a sense of what policies are working right now and, and maybe the state and perhaps even the, the county level? You kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I wonder if you could provide a little bit more detail. Sure. So for many years now, the majority of states have had renewable portfolio standards and other policies on the books that are really trying to drive innovation on clean electricity. And they've really been able to help make it more appealing and cost competitive. It, of course, helps to lower conventional air pollution as well as greenhouse gas emissions. And it's really helped bring about the end of coal, which used to be king not that long ago. Um, solar and wind are now very cost competitive and in fact, the cheapest uh, cost for new generation. And as a result of that and the state leadership that we see, many states have now um, said that they really are committing to 100% clean electricity targets in the future. Um, so those are some of the policies that have really driven improvements in that sector. Of course, California has been a leader for so long, including on vehicle standards, which they're allowed to be more aggressive than the feds under the Clean Air Act, and states can follow their lead. So that's been huge in, first of all, getting greenhouse gas reductions off the ground under that sector, because that was something that was not happening earlier and then having the last administration follow their lead, and then now working with other states to promote zero emission cars and trucks. Um, so, you know, really, I think we've seen movement in both the electricity sector and the transportation sector, um, very much in part because of this state leadership. And then finally, I'll just say, you know, policies like um, the Cap and Invest programs in California and the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative have been important, not so much because the cap has been very draconian, but we see the benefit of the investments of the proceeds that are generated from those 
cap and trade programs or cap and invest policies. And it's something that the states in our transportation and climate initiative are looking to, to inform how they design a cap and investment strategy that can promote, can promote uh, you know, meaningful reductions and benefit the communities that are, you know, overburdened by pollution or underserved currently by transit. And so we're looking forward to using that model in this region for reducing emissions from the transportation sector as well. So where do we stand more generally in terms of federal policy? Can you give us a sense of what was working before 2016 and then what damage the Trump administration has done over the past four years? Yes, well, we've certainly lost some precious time in this Trump era. And fortunately, the fact that it's only gonna be one term, I think will help us to you know, turn the ship back around. But by not pursuing some of the aggressive action that was you know, lined up for them in the Obama administration, but in fact, you know, attacking that action and really promoting fossil fuels and even attacking some of the state prerogatives that we just discussed, like California's leadership on vehicles uh, and the cap and invest policy that includes Quebec has been really devastating. Um, and of course, he's done so much across environmental and natural resources issues more broadly. So, you know, it's going to take some time to repair that damage. On the international scale, it's going to take time, I think, for us to reestablish some credibility, given that we played a leadership role in crafting agreements like the Paris Agreement, and then, you know, obviously backed out of it with a lot of fanfare under Trump. But President Biden has said that it's going to be one of his very first acts is to rejoin Paris and to go beyond that because he realizes that we need to do more. So, um, on the international level, you know, I think reestablishing that leadership position and credibility will be very important, but I think it will take some time. And then domestically, uh, their administration, the new administration is committing to looking at what Trump did and really early on, you know, reversing some of the rollbacks to things like the Clean Power Plan and the vehicle standards that were really making headway in some of these important sectors and shifting away from incentivizing fossil fuel development to more clean energy, promoting investment in climate resilience and the best science. Um, I think they're gonna face some challenges because using Clean Air Act authority will likely end up in the courts as it has in the past. And um, you know, to the extent that the Biden administration wants to continue to use the Clean Air Act or needs to use it because we're not likely to get comprehensive legislation, there will be challenges, I think, for more conservative courts that have been affected by this Trump era as well. Um, and then finally, in the adaptation space, we worked with states and cities and tribal governments with the last administration on really looking at ways that the federal government can support communities that are on the front lines for climate impacts and really informing what they were doing. And unfortunately, a lot of that work was stalled under the current administration. A lot of things have been even taken off of websites in terms of you know, data and information that could be useful to people really trying to prepare for impacts. Executive orders were revoked, federal funding was pulled. Um, so you know, we'd like to see that reinstated very quickly and more support for you know, climate smart policies, whether it be clean energy policy or adaptation policy put into place as soon as possible. So uh, let's assume the Democrats don't win both of those runoffs in, uh, in Georgia. Um, let's say they only win one. Uh, 
Well, what can a Biden administration still do, even if it doesn't have the Senate? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that a close Senate is um, difficult either way, um, as, as these things have unfortunately emerged in a rather partisan kind of frame, which has not always been the case around climate change. I will say, you know, one of the early leaders on climate uh, legislation that I had the privilege to work on um, was Senator McCain. And there have been other Republicans over the years, including Lindsey Graham, actually, who was working on a bipartisan basis. But, you know, that has really not been the case so much in recent years at the federal level. It's still exist at the state levels we're seeing through TCI. But but having said that, a narrow margin um, either way in the Senate will still make it very difficult because of the rules of the Senate to really advance an ambitious climate agenda, I think. You know, I think we might see things like stimulus funds and infrastructure funds through transportation bills flow that hopefully can move the needle on climate and I think there'll be some appetite for that. But I think the kind of, you know, major cap and invest bill or cap and trade bill or even a clean energy standard would be difficult. So that means that, you know, Biden is going to have to use the existing authority, which is vast across all of government, as he has pledged to do, to really try to reorient the federal government in its own spending and operations and in its own authorities to promote things like carbon-free electricity, which has been part of his pledge, you know, moving towards net zero carbon emissions over the whole economy by 2050, reversing the rollbacks like we talked about and putting in place new ambitious fuel economy standards, things that they can do with existing Clean Air Act authority. It's going to take some time, but that's going to be really important. Along with investment that we hope to see um, in clean energy and innovation, you know, maybe, as I said, coming from stimulus because of the fact that we obviously, you know, see a lot of people hurting and clearly the frontline workers are affected by uh, the cuts in transit. And we've seen the benefits of transit for our economies and we've got to keep those kinds of investment going and they can create jobs and help people get to their jobs. So I think it's going to be those kind of policies that move forward, you know, sometimes a partnership with Congress and sometimes not. Just a quick follow-up to that. So what we're seeing, right, is in part sort of an unprecedented shift towards executive action as the driver for climate policy as opposed, or environmental policy generally, as opposed to earlier we were talking about Nixon and the EPA um, and earlier environmental legislation. Do you think that is an accurate way to look at the shift in how climate policy is addressed? Well, often Obama's policies were characterized by the Republicans, frankly, as kind of, you know, executive branch overreach, but they were actually grounded in the Clean Air Act, which according to the Supreme Court, you know, is certainly able to regulate air pollution, including greenhouse gases. So what I would say is the executive branch would be looking at the full extent of its authority and how they can actually move the needle in all the relevant agencies. So, you know, not just EPA using Clean Air Act authority, but also the Department of Energy, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Agriculture with, you know, carbon sequestration policies, you know, um, policies that capture carbon for, you know, in agriculture, in the the soils or in um, trees. Um, 
So, you know, I think that's certainly within presidential authority um, to, to do that and to move forward with that. I think how they go about that might be challenged as it was in the Obama regime in the courts. And because the courts might be taking a more narrow view of what the agencies are authorized to do, there might be some holdups. And obviously that will just unfortunately add time, time that we don't have given the climate crisis. Um, but I do think that that's a more likely scenario than seeing more comprehensive climate legislation like in years past we had seen really tried on even a bipartisan basis. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in your view, should climate action be part of, or could climate action be part of COVID-19 stimulus packages and more general um, legislative efforts to combat the pandemic? And what, what could that look like? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I mentioned earlier the importance of transit to essential workers and to others getting to their jobs. And of course, COVID has really hurt transit in terms of the numbers and ridership and therefore the um, ability of transit to survive the crisis. So stimulus is very much needed to support that. And that, of course, can involve investment in transit and transit-oriented development that creates jobs. So that's a good thing, right, for a green stimulus, but also really provides, you know, triple benefits, if not more, in terms of job creation and clean air and all of those things. Um, you know, I think you can look back on the Obama administration stimulus, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act during the last recession, and that had significant clean energy components with significant benefits. And those helped to bring down the cost of electric vehicle batteries and build smart electric grid systems. And so, you know, I think we can look forward to more of that. There's already pending legislation, the Moving America Forward Act, that's more in the kind of transportation infrastructure investment um, side that has incorporated support for electric vehicle charging and resilience. And where some testimony that I offered last year identified some barriers to people using electric vehicle, like vehicles um, for long distance travel, like consistent signage, which is lacking, or even the ability to use the right of way or rest stops to charge. So I think, you know, those are opportunities to really um, combine green uh, considerations as Europe has in its stimulus uh, with um, the COVID pandemic and a recovery coming out of it. So here's a question I actually asked um, Congressman Raskin, uh, Jamie Raskin last, last night for another event. Um, but when it comes to passing legislation in, uh, in Congress, do you think it's more effective to focus on um, bipartisan approaches that are kind of narrowly aimed at reducing or mitigating uh, greenhouse gas emissions like carbon pricing is probably a classic example. Or is it better to bundle climate policies in one big bill like the Green New Deal attempts to do, um, you know, to address the full spectrum of challenges and opportunities posed by the climate crisis? So, you know, I think at this point, I would just say whatever really works, right, and gets you the votes you need. I've been working on climate policy for a few decades now and federal policy for 22 years or so at the Pew Center for 10 years and then here for 12. And, you know, I think I'm really open to new solutions and somewhat humble about, you know, thinking that my ideas are necessarily the best to, to really get us over the hump. I think 
the politics is difficult and it really will remain so no matter what happens in Georgia. So I think seizing opportunities wherever they are to include climate-friendly policies and legislation and in the White House policies we just discussed is going to be really important. I will say personally, and from the work that I did overseeing the analysis at the Pew Center and the work that I oversee and also read here, including new McKinsey um, analysis that just came out, um, I think the price signal actually can play a role in unlocking investment and innovation and obviously in generating resources that importantly can be spent on things that matter to people. And that includes not just things that bring benefits from a climate point of view, but also conventional air pollution and other amenities to communities, whether it be transit or, uh, you know, getting kids out of dangerously smelly diesel buses and getting them into electric school buses, having um, big trucks and the port terminals and things like that where people are experiencing higher rates of dying from COVID because they're already more susceptible because of the air pollution that they face. You know, These kinds of investments, I think, really are important and create win-wins. And I think that you can do that different ways. You can do that through stimulus that may or may not be raised from the carbon policy itself. But I do think in the past, and certainly at the regional level and the state level, you know, people have had some success, and also in Europe and other places, with these kind of policies that really include both a price signal on carbon and, importantly, the investments that really drive a lot of the benefits, along with regulation, right? I mean, regulation is clearly important. But in many cases, you need more than what is allowed from current regulation because of the different layers of government and behavioral changes that you need to see. You mentioned a couple of times how the politics is difficult. Do you see anything changing the politics for the better <laughs> um, in the next, you know, let's say in the next four years or so? I actually think that, unfortunately, because we're already seeing these dramatic impacts of climate change, including here in the U.S., uh, the fire season that's just been so devastating and the air quality issues that have come along with it, the devastating historic hurricane season that saw seven major storms threaten my home state of Louisiana and five of them actually hit it. I mean, really unbelievable um, uh, damage. And this is the future that we're looking at. I think uh, Governors of both parties and mayors are really alarmed by what they're seeing, having to declare disaster after disaster. And it's even harder in this COVID era to evacuate people safely and put them in places that are safe together. So I do think that we're seeing a shift. We're also seeing, of course, a lot of interest in younger generations and really you know, their political mobilization, thanks to people like Greta, but also domestically, you know, voting in this recent election and really speaking out that this is an issue that they will look at when they elect people. I think those things are really important, coupled with the fact that policies and time have brought down the prices of renewable, clean alternatives to conventional pollution. I really am optimistic that it will get easier. I think it is getting easier. I just think, you know, when you're talking about policies that will change winners and losers. You're always going to have those kind of, you know, invested industries, some of them, not all of them, you know, trying to fight or slow walk change. And, you know, that's really been what we've seen for years, including misinformation campaigns on climate change. 
Um, but even then, I think the public pressure and the shareholder movements and things are really helping to change the discourse around climate policy. Yeah, I, I certainly hope you're right. <laughs> and, I, and I think you are. Uh, I do want to get into adaptation a little bit too, actually, bef before we finish. Um, uh, because you mentioned that you do work on, on adaptation. The National Climate Assessment concluded that, you know, very few adaptation measures have been implemented yet. What can a Biden administration do to support adaptation on the scale that we so desperately require right now? So on adaptation, there was some movement in the last administration to start to really look with local and state leaders and tribal leaders who are on the front lines at what the impacts were, what the federal government could do to make it easier for them to prepare for the changes that are underway. All that work was pretty much stopped, unfortunately, at the federal level. And it's been difficult to keep it up at the state and local level, in part because it does cost money. But you have seen many states on a bipartisan basis, especially coastal states that are very vulnerable, naming climate adaptation czars, if you will, you know, setting up climate advisory panels that advise them, often both on mitigation and adaptation. And a number of states that we have, you know, featured on our website who've been doing planning for adaptation, looking at the different sectors and how they might be affected, and working sometimes with academic institutions like ours or in their home state to grapple with what you can do about that. But, you know, as you point out, less on implementation. And I think part of that is the question of who pays for it comes up and how it gets paid for, because existing federal funding streams, for example, can often be spent to put people back or infrastructure back in the same way after a disaster, for example. So I think really trying to make sure that you know the policies are flexible to allow people both pre and post disaster to spend in ways that make sense since the future doesn't look like the past. Um, having new grant programs, maybe competitive grant programs that allow people to have a race to the top could be something I think that this new administration would look at changing federal funding formulas and cost benefit analysis that includes considerations of making people and communities more resilient and safe, I think would be really important. And again, you know, the last administration was really moving forward with this with federal standards for projects that benefited in any way from federal funds. Um, you know, so the floodplain regulations were being changed and standards were being changed. All that's out the window, but we really need to revisit that as quickly as possible. We've covered so much ground in our conversation, and I just want to wrap up by asking you if there's anything that's broadly overlooked in discussions of climate policy generally. You know, I think that discussions of climate policy and the media often talk about, you know, kind of bold pronouncements that people have made either, you know, to get into Paris or to set a very ambitious target at 2050 or, um, you know, to decarbonize the power sector by a certain year in the future. And that's all important and aspirational. But, you know, what we spend a lot of our time on and other groups that I really um, admire a lot is really just nuts and bolts of how to unpack what some of the current barriers are to technologies and policies and um, investment on the ground 
and how to actually try to unlock some of the opportunities that exist right now. Because we actually do have the technology and we do have policy approaches that can unlock some real movement towards lower carbon solutions and more resilient climate infrastructure investments. But it's often more mundane and frankly, less sexy to a lot of people, I think, um, legal or policy barriers or perceived barriers that are a holdup. And so while it's not really the kind of thing that you read about a lot, you know, it's things like, you know, the use of right of way on um, highways to allow for charging of infrastructure, making it consistent for people who drive electric vehicles to be able to pull up and know that they can charge at a device, that that will work for their car and that they can charge it to the same app or card, you know. Um, the things that state PUCs, the public utility commissions do to promote clean energy or not, you know, and what they allow the electricity companies to get reimbursed for. Um, changing engineering standards um, in all the different ways that affect resilience. You know, these things are, again, they're not necessarily fashionable things to talk about, but I think they're really, really important. And I think a combination of attacking all those levers and understanding that we really can use current policy approaches and even better, new policy approaches and laws to move the needle using technologies that exist, we can really make a huge difference and you know, really unlock the potential. And this isn't something that we need to wait 20 or 30 years to do. We can start doing this today. Professor Arroyo, thank you so much for speaking with us today. This has been uh, so interesting to chat about the, the fashionable and the unfashionable aspects of climate policy. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ClimateHist. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast. <laughs>